Well, thus far, we've looked at our definition. Uh, we said that ministry is being used by God to influence people to move from where they are to where God wants people to be. We then said that we're going to examine four pillars, and thus far, we've done the first two. We're not going to start the third one tonight, but what we're going to do is we're going to illustrate um, a with a bunch of examples how we do one and two. And for those of you that attend Calvary or, and stay awake during the service, uh, we're going to use examples that come right from the most recent messages and maybe one from a little further back to show you a little bit how when we bring a sermon, we're actually practicing those first, first two pillars. And hopefully you'll begin to see how those things fit together now. The Bible's a big story, and the Bible is Jesus' story. And you'll, you'll now see how the pieces fit, and we move in that direction. Well, the first thing I wanted to do before we jump in with the illustrations, I've actually received a couple of questions with uh, people very nice, inquisitively saying, Charles, I'm not quite sure that I understand what you mean when you said we shouldn't apply the Bible to our lives, we should apply our lives to the Bible. So you don't apply the Bible to your life, you apply your life to the Bible. Now, I admit, that was prob I mean, that's probably worded a little bit provocatively, but the point is accurate. And that point grows out of what we said a few weeks ago when we said we live in a culture, and all cultures have stories, we live in a culture that presents a story or a narrative. And, but the stories are not, you know, without gaps. The stories have problems. We then, excuse me, often learn the Bible or exposed to the Bible as a collection of bits, a bag of marbles. And what we naturally want to do, if we've only learned the Bible in bits and pieces, we want to take a biblical bit and plug it into the narratives that are familiar to us. And the point I was trying to make is this. Just as we live in a culture that's filled with narratives, we adopt some of those narratives for ourselves. We then wind up taking the foundational elements of the cultural narrative, and that becomes our story. The trajectory of the narrative, the goals we're aiming for, what we want to accomplish, and then we go to church, we sometimes learn a biblical bit, and we apply the bit to that cultural narrative. So maybe you're influenced by, but my goal in life is to make my grandkids' life as easy as possible. I'm going to accumulate enough, save enough, so they're going to have, have to never worry. Well, that is not a biblical part of the story. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But what happens if that becomes your primary objective, then it's easy to take a biblical verse, a biblical bit, and begin to apply it to that narrative. When I say we should be reading our lives into the story, what I mean is we need to adopt the foundational elements of the gospel narrative. We need to be living with those goals in mind seeking to continue what Jesus started rather than live for the multitude of goals that are presented by our culture. So rather than adopting stories and elements of our culture and use the Bible to propel our trajectory and things that we want, let's learn the biblical story and the gospel narrative well and live that narrative out. That's the whole idea behind continue what Jesus started. Let's live out of his story rather than adopting him to our story. Another way that you may have heard me say that over the years is this. God's not interested in blessing your plans. 
But very often, isn't that how we pray? You come up with plans, and then you come, and your prayers become consumed with asking God to bless your plans. God's not really interested in blessing your plans. God's interested in you and I getting in step with his plan. That, that's kind of the same idea. So what does he want? What are his objectives, goals, and values? Live out that story rather than a, trying to adopt or adapt what God's calling you to, to your story or some facsimile of that. That, that was all I, I meant by that. And so what we did two weeks ago and last week is to say, here is our story, right? And the story is the story from creation to new creation. And then that is our story. So we live on that story. We don't exist on a storyline after the Bible. The Bible story continues all the way to new creation. We live on that trajectory. So live out of that engine, that energy, that passion, and live it in our time in a culturally appropriate way. So then we said the Bible's a big story, and we took a few uh, minutes walking through the story that we created, a story with six acts, and we did say if you are going to um, extrapolate one of the acts, the one that you probably should is the third one, that, that's actually the bulk of the Bible, and so we put the majority of the Bible into one act. That's where God is kind of presenting a kingdom and what it means to live in that kingdom, but it's an earthly kingdom that has values and important priorities and foundational elements that that's Israel in the Old Testament. So we could break down act three into covenant. God establishes covenant with Abraham, covenant with Moses, covenant with David, conquest of the land. So they're led out of slavery in Egypt travel in the wilderness, make it into the promised land. They conquer the promised land, right? And then there's the institution of the monarchy or the kingdom. And so you could separate it into three, and then you would have nine acts instead of six. But it's easier to remember six, knowing that three is a really long one. It's always important to remember where we are. We're here. We're not back there. We are after God appears. And so we need to understand Jesus has already come. We are the beginning of that kingdom crashing into earth, and we now continue to extend that kingdom by continuing what Jesus started. Secondly, we said uh, that the Bible isn't just the story, the Bible is Jesus' story. And here is what I meant by that. The Bible has a point and a purpose, right? The point is Jesus, and the purpose is to lead us to him. So everything in the Bible is flowing to Christ and from Christ. He is the climax. He's the summit everything to him and from him. Therefore, the Bible is not a self-help manual. It's not a book of rules where you gather the rules and you try to obey all the rules and abstain from all the prohibitions and you're in. It's not a collection of heroes where you gather your heroes, you emulate them, and somehow you're in and you get what they got by way of blessing. No, the Bible is Jesus' story. And if anything, we see the characters in Scripture living out kind of the drama of grace, and here, here's what I mean by that. You often find biblical characters. You, you can pick them. You know, Daniel, David, Samuel. They find themselves in a predicament where in and of themselves, they cannot get out of it, right? They're stuck. They're absolutely hopeless and helpless. God then comes not because they deserve it. God then comes, gives what they need, provides what, what they need for deliverance, for rescue. That's the grace story, right? The fallen human condition is we're hopeless and helpless. The gospel redemptive grace story is that God gives what we cannot provide for ourselves. 
And the really tricky thing with the gospel is God waits till we reach the point of knowing we're hopeless and helpless before he comes and rescues. Uh, I mentioned uh, a few weeks ago, I think uh, the book is called um, Help, Thanks, Wow by Anne Lamott. Actually, I have a copy since I mentioned it to you a couple weeks ago. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure I like all the book, but the three prayers are really great. The three prayers are, one, help. We reach a position we cannot help ourselves. Thanks. When God comes and delivers, God provides that help. We say thank you. And we're often amazed, wow, at how God does it. Help, thanks, wow. Three prayers of the Christian life. Um, We looked at two verses, well, two passages that kind of rivet that Christotelic or Christocentric reading in our minds. Jesus says to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So all the scriptures, that's Old Testament. I don't have a New Testament yet. But we explained everything, how it's pointing to him. John 5, you study the scriptures, Jesus says to the religious leaders, you study them diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life, but these are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So the idea is the Bible, I said, is kind of like John the Baptist. John the Baptist spent his, most of his entire ministry saying, I'm not the one. They kept coming. Oh, we think you're the Messiah. Aren't you the Messiah? No, I'm not the one. He's the one. In a sense, that's what the Bible does. The Bible keeps saying, I'm not the one. It's not in obeying. It's not in memorizing. It's not in the text. It's the one to whom the text is pointing. That's the solution. So that was how we did that. And then I found, I was reading this week, and I came across this quote Um, And it it kind of reinforces what we're going to illustrate tonight. So uh, Don Carson is a friend of mine, teaches, well, he's actually retired now. He's research professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And here's what Don wrote in uh, For the Love of God. There are places in the Bible where God talks about the future, right? We would call that prophecy. God says, oh, here's what's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen. But that isn't the major part of the Bible. You see all this other stuff. But God also provides pictures patterns, types, and models. In these cases, he establishes an institution or a right or a pattern of relationships. He then drops hints, and pretty soon you have a cascade of hints that these pictures or patterns or types or models are not ends in themselves, but they're ways of anticipating something even better. In these cases, then, God talks about the future in pictures. And the ultimate future is Jesus. He's talking about that in pictures. And all those different things kind of point to him. So I put a few up here on the board for you. King David. Uh, So I'm not sure if you've ever just read kind of in order or just read a smattering of New Testament sermon. A bunch of sermons in the New Testament, right? I don't think we have the whole sermon. Sermons were not that short back then. Like Some people say, oh, Charles, the whole Sermon on the Mount. I can read through the Sermon on the Mount in 10 minutes. Um, Yeah, I think the sermon was a lot longer than that. That's kind of the summarized version. But if you were to read through most sermons in the New Testament, say in Acts and some of what Paul writes, here's what you would discover. Um, You talk about Old Testament, if it's, you know, to a Jewish congregation. We're going to talk about Moses, talk about Abraham, and we're going to get to David. And as soon as the sermon gets to David, they make a beeline for Jesus. So when you're reading the sermons, it's kind of like, yeah, this happened. Yeah, Adam and Eve, and then Moses, then Abraham, and then Moses and all. And then David came along, and David pointed to Jesus. So David, right, the king, 
points to Jesus, the ultimate king. That's all over the place. That's why when we looked at Psalms, and we're going to relook at some of them tonight, that's why I said, when you're reading the Psalms, it's appropriate to read the Psalm as being about Jesus and spoken by Jesus because Jesus is the ultimate David. So what David went through partially, Jesus goes through ultimately. What David goes through temporally, Jesus goes through eternally. So that, that, that's kind of how that works. But you also have um, the Passover lamb. So we'll look at the Passover tonight a little bit when we look at, um, when we look at Jesus the bread. Well, Jesus is the Passover lamb. Paul tells us that. You got manna, right? Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, and manna is referred to in the context. Melchizedek, that really weird character in the Old Testament, he was a real human being who lived, but the way he's presented in Genesis, he's the only character up until that point, or very few, if there aren't, I don't want to make a statement that may or may not be exactly right. He's one of the very few characters, certainly the only main character that shows up in Genesis to that point, that has no genealogy. Every other important person is always introduced, not by what they've done, right? We introduce ourselves with a resume. I went to this college. I did this. I accomplished that. Um, in the Old Testament, the most important thing was, who was your daddy? And who was his daddy? Melchizedek shows up without genealogy. He just pops on the scene. Jesus then, and the writer of Hebrews tells us, Jesus is the ultimate Melchizedek. He has no human genealogy. He appears. Melchizedek is king and priest. Those things were often separate in the ancient world. You had kings and you had priests, just like in Israel. Melchizedek is king and priest. Jesus, king and priest. So Melchizedek becomes a sign, just like the quote from Don said, a sign, a right, an institution, a person pointing to Jesus. You also have Sabbath rest, but Jesus provides ultimate Sabbath rest. The high priest, Jesus is the high priest. In fact, uh, there are three offices. You've probably heard that in the Old Testament, prophet, priest, king. Jesus is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. Each of those offices in some way point to him. And each of those offices have a pretty unique function. Um, here, here's how they work. What did, um, what did prophets do in the Old Testament? Well, I, immediately some of you, oh, prophets foretold the future. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Some of them did that, but that wasn't what, what they mainly did. The main thing prophets did was to assign value to things. It's as if um, prophets walked around and put price tags on things. It's more important than you worship God than you uh, serve an idol. It's more important that you love your family and care for them than it is that you live with a sense of entitlement and serve yourself. Prophets put price tags on stuff. They assign meaning. Kings then take that meaning. That's why the prophets always had entree and the ear of a king. Kings then would organize life around the meaning assigned by the prophet. Priests then brokered blessing and cursing, right? And so priests would pronounce blessing and forgiveness if the ordinances or whatever were followed, cursing if they were not. Jesus is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. He assigns perfect meaning because he's God. He organizes life, and if we live following his prescription, life will make sense. And Jesus is the ultimate priest that assigns, and that assigns blessing and curse for how we live out those parameters. So, that's how the prophet, priest, king things work. Temple. 
The Old Testament, remember we said, uh, I guess it was last week, tabernacle is a series of barriers. Temple, a series of barriers, but now it's permanent. Jesus shows up and he says, essentially, I am the temple. What's the temple? The temple is the place where God meets with people. God, who's holy and perfect, meets with people that are sinful and fallen, but they have to meet in the temple. Jesus says, I am the temple. I'm the ultimate meeting place between God and man without barriers now, right? Interesting. And Shekinah, we talked about this and we'll mention in a few minutes. Um, Jesus, the light of the world. Shekinah glory, right? Resided in the Holy of Holies on the mercy seat there. But the Shekinah glory also, when Israel was moving through the desert, the Shekinah glory, that pillar of fire, would lift from the Holy of Holies and would guide them through the desert. Jesus shows up and says, I am the light of the world. Follow me, but now without barriers, right? So you have to kind of know um, what's going on in the Old Testament in the first, you know, 75% of the Bible in order to know what Jesus means when he shows up and begins to say who he is and what he came to do. Uh, I spoke uh, to the new members class on Sunday and uh, somebody had a question, one of our elders, he had a question and he just said, so is the, is the Old Testament like essential? Because, you know, there are some that some people that would say, well, you know, we're, we're members of the new covenant. We really don't need the old covenant. We don't need the old Testament. But here's the, here's the problem with that. You can't understand the new Testament without the old Testament. So what does it mean when Jesus says, I'm bread? If you don't have an Old Testament, what does that mean? You get to say what it means. I'm the light of the world. What's that mean? What's it mean he's the Passover lamb? Jesus uses all that stuff, all those institutions, those rights, all those organizational principles, and he says, this is how all that stuff was pointing to me. So that's kind of what we're trying to do. Say, how does all that stuff point to Jesus? And then from Jesus, how do we move to live them out? So we did this last week. We don't do the jump over Jesus. We do the move along the redemptive history storyline. I'm going to walk through it very briefly. I'm going to try to restrain myself here. We're going to, we're going to attempt to look at maybe six or seven sermons that could easily be well over an hour, but we're going to kind of look at how those messages live out or try to illustrate the principles that we've talked about in the first two pillars. So we're in a series now called Come and See, and I've already alluded to this. And the series is all about the seven I am statements from the Gospel of John. So, you know, John the, John the Apostle, um, he wrote his Gospel, right? 21 chapters, full of stuff. Um, but he wrote them, he weaves the whole, all of the chapters around seven I am statements. So uh, once you're looking for them, they kind of jump out at you, right? So Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, I'm the light of the world, I'm the gate. What's that mean? I'm the good shepherd. I'm the vine, you are the branches, right? I'm the, I'm the way to truth and the life. I'm the resurrection, right? Jesus has all these things in there. And then John weaves the rest of his gospel around those seven things. But you can't lift the I am statement out of the context and understand what Jesus is talking about because the context is pointing back to something from the Old Testament. And Jesus is saying, that's me, that's me. So let's, uh, let, 
let's use um, our storyline and do it this way. So in Act 4, Jesus shows up, right? Jesus appears, and Jesus um, says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. But if you look at that, so if you have your Bibles, you, you mean, we're not going to read all the chapters, but if you have your Bible, it'll help, you to see, it'll help you to see how Jesus is putting this together. Jesus says that in John chapter 6, verse 35. So it says, then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Now, Josh spoke on this I am statement two weeks ago, but that verse doesn't just come out of nowhere. So if you turn back a little bit to verse four of chapter six, it almost seems like you have a throwaway statement. All right, so if you look at verse four, now I'll read verses one through four, they're short, but you need, you need to see how the statement doesn't seem to have any significance to the context unless you see the pointer. So here's what happened. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that's the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up to a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. Now, here's the statement. The Jewish Passover festival was near. Never talks about Passover again. Why in the world would he say the Jewish Passover festival was near? Well, because... What happens right after we're told the Passover festival is near, Jesus feeds the 5,000. So Jesus is saying over here in Act 4, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never be hungry, right? He who comes to me will never be thirsty. But that is looking back to something from Act 3. That's looking back to God providing the manna as Israel wandered through the desert. Now, if you don't know that God provided manna as Israelites wandered through the desert, that God provided for them, God sustained their life, Jesus being the bread of life isn't going to make nearly as much sense. And so Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, just like manna was the bread that kept you guys alive. So I am ultimate manna, right? I'm ultimate bread. I'm bread that when you eat, you won't survive another day or two. You will survive forever and ever. I am that ultimate manna. Moses, and here's the point he makes in this, in this section. Moses didn't provide that manna. God provided the manna. And God sent me to provide life and sustenance to you forever. But if you don't know anything about manna, and if you don't know anything about God's provision, it's pretty tough to try to understand what Jesus meant when he said, I'm bread. Um, and if you think about it, think about God, God's faithfulness, how, how amazing this is. God provided manna every single day for 40 years. 365 times 40 minus every Sabbath. <laughs> 40 years, he never missed a day. Wow. Can you trust a God like that? But the point isn't that God only provides physically for us. The point is, Jesus comes and says, God provides eternally for us. God doesn't just provide bread that'll keep you physically alive for a short period of time. God provides bread. God provides sustenance to give you an abundant life, right? To give you shalom, not just for a week, 
but for eternity. Then he feeds the 5,000, which then takes the bread and propels it into the future. So Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Passover was near, that's looking back. So Jesus said, yeah, that manna provided by God, I'm ultimate manna. He feeds the 5,000, and that propels that event into the future and says, I am the provision for all, for all time. Now, without knowing anything about Act 3, it's pretty tough to understand fully, and we still don't understand fully, but to understand even partially what Jesus means when he says he's bread. See how that works? So he's looking back and forward. Now, here's another one. I'm the light of the world. So Act 4, Jesus shows up in chapter uh, 8, and he says, I'm the light of the world. Now, we did this on Sunday, but just to be redundant, let's do it again. In chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says, John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The verse begins by saying in verse 12, when Jesus spoke again, okay, well, when did he speak the first time? Well, if you look back to John chapter 7, 37, you realize that Jesus said at the festival. What festival? Gotta look back to verse two. John 7, 2 says, this was the festival of tabernacles. Well, tabernacles happened all the way back here in Act 3. So when Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, you have to understand something about the Feast of Tabernacles. Well, what was that about? Feast of Tabernacles was in the fall. Feast of Tabernacles was a harvest feast, right, of God's provision, of plenty and joy, celebration. But don't just enjoy the big celebration, you know, sit down and be fat and happy at the, at the banquet table. During the, the festival, when you're enjoying the harvest and you're eating yourself, you know, into oblivion, you're going to live in tents. Why would they live in tents? Well, because again, the tents pictured wandering in the desert for 40 years, living in tents with the prospect of the land of milk and honey on the other side of the Jordan. So they're living out, living in tents, wandering in the desert with the prospect of plenty, the land of milk and honey. Jesus says, I'm the light that guides you there and I'm here to deliver what the promised land only gave temporally. See how that works? So you've got to understand something about what's going on back here or you can't understand what Jesus means over here. Then, right after that, and I just mentioned this briefly on Sunday because I was running out of time. But then something happens in John chapter 9 that moves the story into the future. Jesus, right, the pillar, he's Jesus is the light. They had torches that would light up at the Feast of Tabernacles. Every night, it gets dark there, right? Every night they would light these big torches. Now remember, living in tents, because they're wandering through the desert, they're enacting that, they're dramatizing that. With the prospect of the great harvest, the land of milk and honey, plenty coming, and all of that's happening, and um, Jesus shows up and says, I'm that light. What light was that symbolizing? Shekinah light. That, that's God's presence, right? The pillar symbolized the presence of God. Jesus says, that's who I am. I'm the presence of God. That's why we didn't have time to look at it on Sunday. You check it out. Toward the end of chapter 8, 
it says, and it's kind of watered down a little bit in the NIV. It actually says, after Jesus said this, it was kind of amazing that the people didn't rise up and try to kill him. Why would they try to kill him? They wouldn't, they wouldn't kill him because he said, I'm a flashlight. They'd kill him if he is trying to say, I'm the presence of God. And nobody rose up to kill him. Yeah, you bet nobody did. So in chapter 9, what happens? Now, now picture this, right? Um, and you kind of only, only know this as you're putting the story together. Jesus is in the temple courts, right? Torches are blazing, all of that. Jesus then, the presence of God, right? The light of the world. He then leaves the temple in chapter 9. So here's Shekinah glory, leaving the temple and being among the people, right? The presence of God is now among the people, and he comes across a man that was born blind. He's never seen a thing, ever. And Jesus gives sight to the man who was blind. The presence of God is now leaving the barricaded existence of a temple, moving out among the people, and bringing sight to those who admit they're blind. I mean, that, that, that's, shit, that's the pillar leaving. The, so rather than being locked in the temple because of sin, Jesus is now coming to remedy the sin problem and he's moving the presence of God out among the people and he's bringing sight. And then, then you got that other weird thing. You know, I, I think I told you. So I, I read Le, Leviticus um, a little while ago. And it's kind of interesting as you read through that. If you're clean... I don't mean like physical, I hope you're clean. Uh, but if you're ceremonially clean and you come in contact with somebody who's not, you become unclean. That's always the way it works. Clean comes in contact with unclean, the clean becomes unclean, not with Jesus. Jesus is clean, and when he comes in contact with the unclean, the unclean become clean. He's reversing that. Now, you've got to know something about how that cleanliness stuff is working in order to see how that's going to work, right? So here we are reading something that was recorded in Act 5 that Jesus did in Act 4, but you can't understand it unless you know something about Act 3, but Jesus propels it from 4 and 5 through to the end, where the presence of God, right, Jesus, will be among his people forever and ever, Revelation 21 and 22. See, that, that's just, so all, we're, all I'm trying to say is the Bible is a story and it's Jesus' story. Everything in it is moving to him and from him. And if you try to read a part of it, kind of skipping over Jesus, you, you're kind of skipping over the main thing. It's pretty tough to skip over like the point and the purpose. Make sense? All right, well, let's keep going. We did a, a series of Psalms in uh, January. We did five Psalms. We called it The Voice. And the whole idea there was to say, most of the Bible is God's voice speaking to us. Psalms is different. Most of the Psalms, the vast majority of Psalms, are human voices speaking to God. So it's kind of reversed. Not God speaking to us. There are some of those. I just read one the other day. Usually Psalms are not God speaking to us. They're people speaking to God, and we can use their words to speak to God. All right? So let's then try uh, a couple Psalms. Now, I'm going to try to restrain my, these are like four of my favorite songs. <laughs> and so uh, I'm going to try to just say a few words about them. So if you have your Bibles, I'm, I'm going to read them through, right, each one. Maybe my, uh, I'm not sure it is anymore, but it used to be for years and years, Psalm 1 was absolutely my, my favorite song. 
But remember what I said when we went through Psalms. Read the Psalm through once and ask, what's God teaching? What's teaching me about God? Teach me about myself. Read the Psalm again as if it were about Jesus. Read the Psalm a third time with Jesus speaking it. I mean, you, that, that's reading the Bible as Jesus' story, right? So here we go. Psalm 1, I'll read it, and then we'll play with it for a few minutes. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way, of, the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Now, Psalm 1, we didn't do Psalm 1 in January, but I kind of threw it in. Um, Psalm 1, uh, if, if you look at, at the beginning of it there, you notice that Psalm 1 does not have a title, neither does Psalm 2. But if you look over at the beginning of Psalm 3, you see that Psalm 3 has a title. It says, a Psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Psalm 4 has a title for the director of music with stringed instruments, a Psalm of David. Psalm 5, most of the Psalms in book one, there are five books of Psalms, most of the Psalms in book one have a title, except Psalm 1 and 2, which, lead, which leads lots of scholars to believe that Psalm 1 was actually written, Psalm 1 and 2 both, to introduce the Psalms. So it, it wasn't one of the Psalms. And in fact, when you read it, Psalm 1 is not a prayer. Psalm 1 is a, a statement, right? Psalm 1 is, blessed are these people, and these people are not. Psalm 1 gives us two ways to live, right? Psalm 1 says there are only two ways. Choose at way A or way B, there are only two. So it begins with a statement of uh, the wicked, and the wicked are kind of grinding to a halt. Do you see that? They're walking, then they're standing, then they're sitting. And, and that's kind of grinding to a halt. They are becoming like those negative influencers. So they're walking, they're hearing the counsel. They stop. Now they're standing in their shoes. Then they sit down. They become the counselors themselves. Right? So they are grinding to a halt. So you shouldn't be like that. But then the second verse doesn't give us the opposite. So the second, it always kind of amazes me, right? So verse one says, blessed are those who do not walk, stand, sit like this, when you expect to read, but blessed are those who walk, stand, sit like that. But that's not what we get. We don't get walk, sit, stand, anything. We get blessed are those who meditate. Think about scripture meditate on scripture, process it, mull it over in their mind. That's what it is, right? So starts with scripture, moves to meditation. You know, kind of that internal reflection, taking your time to read it, think it through, not just, you know, reading your verses for today, throwing the Bible away, never think about it again. You know, kind of cogitating on it, right? Like you often heard the example, meditation is like a cow chewing its cud, right? Just over and over and over again. Uh, eating food that takes a while to get down. That, that's what meditation. Worry. Worry is like negative meditation, right? You take what can go wrong and you think about eight million other ways it could go wrong. Meditation is, biblically, thinking about what God says in lots of different ways. 
But then after that, we get a picture. So you get meditation. So the wicked walk, stand, sit. The righteous, or the guys that are, that are blessed, they meditate, something on the inside. So the wicked are doing stuff on the outside. The righteous are doing stuff on the inside. But the inside is producing stuff on the outside. And the stuff being produced on the outside is described in the picture of a tree. So a tree has leaves and a tree has fruit. But just like the illustration that the psalmist uses here, the fruit and the leaves come because the roots of the tree are planted next to the stream. You don't see roots sucking in water, but you know it's happening because the tree has leaves and fruit. Same with people. You don't see what they're meditating, thinking about, but you do see their fruit. You hear what they're saying. You know what they're living for. Therefore, you know what they're sucking in. That's the point. What is unseen produces what is seen. So I can't see what's in your heart. You can't see what's in mine, but I can see your fruit and your leaves and you can see mine. And we can make a hypothesis as to what we're thinking about and meditating on because of the fruit we're producing and the leaves we're generating. So that works? That's the picture. And then we come back to different illustration, but the wicked are like chaff. I'm not a farmer. Chaff is waste product, right? Chaff, you, you can't use chaff as fire started, right? It kind of goes quick. Chaff is the stuff that's blown away, right? It's good for nothing. The righteous are those whose roots are planted next to the stream. They're sucking in water, producing leaves and fruit. The wicked are like chaff, good for nothing and blown away and gone. Okay, so we learn a lot from those verses, right? Uh, we learn about we need to be kind of on the blessed side, right? <laughs> Here's a funny story. Um, it may have been, a, I, I, I spoke on Psalm 1. I want to say one of my first sermons here. And that's like more than 30 years ago now. We were in Heritage Hall. I spoke on Psalm 1. And I thought it was semi-brilliant, right? And here, here was the basic sermon. Psalm 1 is all about coming up to an intersection, and you have to choose which way you're going to take. The road sign says, this way leads to blessedness, that way leads to brokenness. Which are you going to choose? Well, you're not an idiot. So just when you're ready to walk toward blessedness, the corner boys speak up, say, yo, yo, yo. Somebody switched the signs. The path marked blessedness actually leads to brokenness, and the path marked brokenness actually leads to blessedness. The corner boys are saying, the signs are wrong. What are you going to do now? That's Psalm 1. You know what the number one question was after that sermon that Sunday night? Charles, what's a corner boy? I was a corner boy, right? So I knew what a corner boy was. And it kind of showed you everybody was listening, but nobody got what I was saying. <laughs> so the psalm is two ways to go, blessedness and brokenness. Which way are you going to go? The psalmist is saying, God says this way. Our culture, the world, the corner boys are saying go that way. Which way are you going to choose? Choose carefully. The consequences are dire and eternal. That's psalm. Now you learn a lot, right? Now, here's something really interesting that, and again, I'm, I'm not a farmer guy, right? And you'll notice that. If you don't know that already, you're going to know in a minute. The only good of the, the only good the fruit does of the tree that produces it is to give life and nourishment to others. If that fruit, you know, ripens, falls off the tree, 
falls to the ground, eventually rots, goes into the ground, you know, the pulp or whatever of the fruit's gone. The seeds begin to germinate and grow. The seeds from the fruit that the tree produces will actually grow and choke out the life from the tree that produced it. Fruit is no good for the tree that produced it. Fruit is designed to give life and nourishment to others. So as animals come, as people come, they pick the fruit, they, they have life, they have nourishment. Okay, now, now let's uh, reread the psalm. But, but this time, rather than just kind of blow over it, let's read it, uh, taking at face value what it says. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way of the sinner's take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who meditates on his law day and night. All right, who do you know that makes the cut? This person never walks in step with the wicked, never stands in the way of sinners, never sits in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, meditates on it day and night. Who makes the cut? Exactly right. Does Abraham make the cut? Heck no. Moses? No, he's a screw-up. David? He's a mess. Peter? No way. Paul? No. Who makes the cut? Only one person. So if you take Psalm 1 at face value, you could say, yeah, that's right, but only one person ever qualifies, so the rest of us are chaff. But remember the picture? Remember the picture? The one who meditates day and night and doesn't walk, stand, and sit with the company of those that are pushing the wrong way, but are planted next to the stream, the one planted like that produces fruit and leaves that provide shade, nourishment, and life to all those who eat the fruit produced by that one. So ultimately, Jesus is the only one who qualifies, but just like the Psalm says, he is planted next to the river, he produces shade to those who come under it from him, and he produces fruit that gives life and sustenance to all those who come to him. He's the only one that does it. So rather than Psalm 1 being this uh, list of rule, and again, you should be meditating, on, but we can't qualify. You're never going to. And so if you, if you try to treat the Bible as a rule book, you'll either pretend the rules aren't really that significant, or you'll cheat and say you are obeying them when you know you're not. But if you're going to take it at face value, you don't qualify. No one in this room qualifies. I certainly don't. But if Jesus qualifies, I can come under his care, under his shade, and, be, and have life and nourishment as I'm under his care, the only tree that produces fruit and leaves forever. Someone is Jesus' song, and all those who come to him. Just that we won't do Psalm 2, but Psalm 2 says, blessed are all those who come and kiss the Son. So again, it's not meeting all the requirements. It's coming under the, one, under the care of the one who meets the requirements. See how that works? All right, Psalm 23. I know you all know this one. And we're going to be doing it next week, not, not, not this week. We're going to be looking at the Good Shepherd chapter from John 10. And uh, I probably don't have to tell you this. Shepherd is one of the most popular metaphors in the Bible, Right? Jesus does not come in a vacuum and say, oh, you know, by the way, I'm the good shepherd because I always wanted to be a shepherd in the Christmas pageant, so I'm really a shepherd. No, Jesus knew Psalm 23. Jesus knew the Ezekiel passages where the other shepherds that Israel had were consuming them and beating them. Jesus comes and says, not just I'm the shepherd, I'm the good shepherd. I'm not like those bad shepherds. I'm like the Psalm 23 shepherd. All right, so here we go, Psalm 23. 
The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, when we looked at that psalm in January, I started by saying, um, we often only look at the green pastures and good times, right? Good times and green pastures. But the psalm is kind of a video, right? It's, it's more like an Instagram reel rather than it is like a static photograph. And so there are good times in green pastures, but the good times in green pastures quickly moves in a dangerous direction. The same shepherd is leading to the good times in green pastures and into the dark and dangerous valley. The good shepherd is leading both places. You can't say, oh, he lost his way. He didn't mean it. No, no, he meant to do both of them. He meant to do it because that's where you grow up. That's where you get faith. That's where you get strong. That's where you get wisdom as you trust the shepherd through those dark and dangerous things. And so you follow the shepherd. So David, as king, David's trying to think, and remember, David's the king. He's trying to think of an example of how God relates to him and how he relates to God. And you know, it, it makes me smile to think, as David goes back through his entire life, the example he lands on that best describes his relationship to God was when he was a shepherd boy. And a shepherd, that was a miserable job, right? That's why David got it, the runt of the family, they, right? The, the last kid, right? The, he gets the job because nobody else wants to do it. 24-7, out in the weather, taking care of sheep, terrible job. David says, uh, that's what God's like to me. And isn't it amazing? Um, I said in January, Lord there, all caps, that's, a, that's Yahweh. The Lord is my shepherd, all caps. Whenever you see Lord, all caps, that's Yahweh. If you see capital L, small O-R-D, that's Elohim, right? That's a regular name for God. Jesus, David says, Yahweh, the self-existent, accountable to no one, answerable to no one God, that God condescended to be my shepherd. 24-7, taking care of somebody as needy and high maintenance as me. That God did that for me. That's pretty incredible, right? And that God leads into good times and green pastures. Thank God for them. Don't pat yourself on the back thinking you're smart and wise. God did that. Thank him, right? Help, thanks. When he leads to dark and dangerous passes, keep places, keep trusting. He'll see you through. He wants to get you strong, and he gets you to the banquet. He gets you to the king's house, right, where the banquet never ends. And the enemies are all on the outside now, right? The enemies are surrounding you when you're in the valley, but now when you're in the celebration, the enemies are out there. They can't touch you now. And you're there in the presence of the king forever and ever. Okay, now, that's really cool. And I hope you think, wow, that's great. God did that for me. Okay, now let's... Read it as a, if it's about Jesus, and read it as if Jesus says it. David in this psalm says he's a sheep. But David is the king, which means he's also a shepherd. David is a sheep shepherd. Do you know any other sheep shepherds? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I am the good shepherd. David, the sheep shepherd, points to the ultimate sheep shepherd. And read Psalm 23 
coming from the lips of Jesus. Read the psalm with Jesus praying this. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Kind of sounds like Philippians chapter 2, doesn't it? Not just about Jesus. He can pray Psalm 23 too. The ultimate sheep shepherd. We'll turn over to Psalm 40. And we, and we did this in uh, January too. Psalm 40 has become one of my uh, favorite psalms. And I'm, I'm not going to read the whole thing. You can do that later. Um, or if you memorize that sermon, you already know it. But Psalm 40 is kind of, remember we showed the roller coaster at the beginning, right? Psalm 40 starts in the pit, and then God delivers him out of the pit, and now he's real high and he's praising God, but then he's in the pit again and he prays to God, and he's in the pit again, and we, he said, I know I'm going to get out again, and he end, David writes the psalm. David at the end closes by saying, but as for me, I'm poor and needy. Huh, interesting. He's poor and needy. In the pit, praise God delivers. Thank God when he delivers. In a pit again, trust God when you're in a pit. He delivers again. Recognize your poor and needy. Back to the help. Thanks. Wow, right? The psalmist knows. David knows he's poor and needy. He's the king. He has all these servants waiting with bated breath to do what he says. I'm poor and needy. I'm poor and needy. That's kind of what you learn when you're in the pit, right? Um, you know, one of the uh, misconceptions that we all live by, I know I certainly do, most days in our lives, we live as if we're pretty much in control, right? Yeah, you let one little thing go wrong, and God reminds you how much you're in control. We're not in control at all. One little thing goes wrong, one little phone call from a doctor, one little blip on the financial scale, one little phone call with somebody in your family, one little heartbreak from one of your kids, and your life is a mess. We're in control of nothing. We're poor and needy, right? And sometimes, you know, I just wonder, yeah, God delivers us, but sometimes he puts us in pits just to remind us, you know, he's God and we're not. And so it's easy, in, like Psalm 40. So here's, here, I think this was the outline I did for Psalm 40. Pits, praise when God delivers out, prayer when you're in the pit again, and then pointer. Here's the part we don't get to. See, it's real easy to preach on things like Psalm 40, and here's what we here's the rule approach, right? This is not how you do it. Don't, don't wake up now and figure out what I'm saying because it's incorrect. It's easy to read Psalm 40 or other parts of the Bible and say this. We're often in pits. God will deliver you from pits. When he delivers you, praise him. And when you're in a pit again, make sure you pray and call out to God. And let's be steadfast in our prayers, asking God to deliver us. Let's close in prayer. That's, you can't end there. Because there's an interesting quote. There's an interesting quote. The beginning of verse 6 of Psalm 40 is actually quoted in Hebrews chapter 10. So let me read the Hebrews version. Because the writer of Hebrews actually tweaks it a little bit. So uh, if you're in Psalm 40, you stay there. But let me read how the writer of Hebrews quotes 
Psalm 40. He adds a couple words and changes some things, but you know it's Psalm 40. So here's how verse 5 of Hebrews 10 reads. This part is not in Psalm 40. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, huh, remember I said, picture David praying the psalm? That's exactly what the writer of Hebrews just said, right? This is Christmas according to Jesus here, right? Uh, remember, Adam, we did that at a Young Adults. Christmas according to Jesus from Hebrews 10. You want to know the Christmas story according to Jesus? Here it is in Hebrews 10. It's not in Luke. It's not in Matthew. It's right here in Hebrews 10. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said. And then he quotes Psalm 40. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burn offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, Jesus quoting, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll, Old Testament. I have come to do your will, my God. That's Psalm 40. Translated, looked at through the lens of Jesus, praying Psalm 40. That's pretty cool, right? So when you read a psalm, when you read a passage in the Bible, what do you do? You read and say, what's it teaching? What's it teaching me about God? What's it teaching me about myself? What's it teaching me about people? And how does it point me to Jesus? And when you're reading psalms, it's great. You know, I've been doing that. I'm still in psalms now. Um, read the psalm the first time. Read it. What are you learning? What's it saying, right? And, and spend time. I study, right? If you're studying, study it, right? Exhaust what's there. Use whatever tools you got. Figure out what it's saying. Read it again and read it about Jesus. Read it a third time with Jesus praying it or saying it. And you'll be on the right track to read the Bible as a story and to read the Bible as Jesus' story. Let me just say a word about uh, Psalm 73. I'm not going to say too much. Psalm 73 is, uh, if you're not familiar with Psalm 73, you really need to get familiar. Psalm 73 is all about someone almost losing their faith. And they're almost losing their faith, not because they're looking at God, but because they're looking around. And here's what they see. Those that are far from God, those that couldn't give a rip about God, they're prospering. And here I am, right? I'm trying to follow God faithfully, and I'm a chump, right? I'm trying to follow God, and I'm getting my clock cleaned. And these other people, they're not following God. They're getting every, they have all their dreams met. I have those same dreams. I'm getting nothing. So, so let me read a little bit of it. Surely God is good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There it is, right? Now, listen as he describes them. Tell me if you haven't had these thoughts, right? I mean, the psalmists are honest, right? I mean, God says, how are you doing? They let God have it, right? And here he's letting them have it. Okay, well, the wicked, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. 
Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I've kept my, hand, my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted. Every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. And here's the turning point. 17. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. And the rest of the psalm is, now I get it. Now I get it. I entered the sanctuary. Now, here's what you have to understand. When David entered the sanctuary, he didn't go to church. Like He didn't come in, sing a few praise choruses, hear a sermon, and go home. The sanctuary back then dramatized redemption. And how did it work? Forgive me, but you went to worship by bringing an animal. And you dramatized how forgiveness happened. You bring an unblemished lamb or an unblemished animal from a flock and you brought it to worship. The innocent, blameless animal who had done nothing wrong. And you walk up before a priest and you put your hands on the head of that innocent, blameless, spotless animal. And you pray. Read, read Leviticus. And as you pray, symbolically, not really, but symbolically, your sin is transferred to that blameless, spotless animal. And then the priest takes a knife and he slits that lamb's throat. And you listen to that bleeding, crying lamb die. The priest then announces you forgiven. You go home forgiven and the innocent dies on the altar. That was what worship was. So when David says, uh, I was really ticked off about prospering of the wicked. Yeah, until I went to the sanctuary, then all of a sudden it made sense. The innocent can die for the guilty. I'm not nearly as righteous as I tend to think I am. And payday's coming for everybody. But God somehow has made a way for the innocent to die for me, the guilty. And all of a sudden, his eyesight was 2020 again. And he ends by praising God. Now, that kind of makes sense. And as you look forward, all of a sudden you realize when John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God. There you go. Perfectly innocent, spotless, blameless. Come to give his life, the innocent, for the guilty. So when you look around and you say, man, I'm envying the arrogant here. I'm trying to keep my nose clean. I'm getting cleaned out. And these other guys, they're kind of cutting corners and they're getting all that they want. Yeah. Read your life into the story into the big story, your eyesight will be riveted to 2020, and you'll leave praising God too, saying, you know what? 
I have a whole lot more in common with the guilty than I have with the perfect sacrifice that God provided for me that I can be with him. But that'll change how you look at things, right? So Jesus, looking ahead, that's how it works. Um, but we got five minutes. Now let me get five, five more minutes to do something else. Here's what I want to do. We did a series, in fact, I'm not sure you remember this. <laughs> Years ago, I, I looked at, I think it was, I want to say it was 2013 or something like that. We did a series on Acts. And actually, that series title was continuing what Jesus started. And that actually became kind of our motto, vision statement, whatever you want to call it. Continue what, that comes right out of that series. That, that was what we called the series. The first message in that series is trying to communicate that what Jesus is doing is just a continuation of what the whole scripture and what Luke is all about. If you're in a production group, we need to put the Acts one up and not the Psalm one up. If you go to one more slide or a couple more to get the Acts one. There you go. All right, so here's how Acts one works. And I'm, I'm gonna do this quickly. You can check out the passages more in length. Um, so here's what's going on. Acts one, one to five. In my former book, Theophilus, that's the Gospel of Luke, right? So Gospel of, Luke has two volumes, Luke and Acts. And if you read Luke and come to the end and you start reading that, they, they connect together, right? Where Luke ends, Acts picks up. Two volumes, it was too big, right? Two volumes. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them with many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. John baptized you with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. In my former book, Luke, Theophilus, I wrote to you about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Now he's writing volume two about everything Jesus continues to do and teach, but now through the Spirit as he energizes those Christians. They continue what Jesus started. That's the idea. Well, that kind of raises a question then. What did Jesus begin to do and teach? What? Luke, so, okay, go back and memorize Luke, right? That, that's what Jesus begins, go do that. Yeah, but Jesus actually encapsulates all that he does in Luke. He's just an expansion of that, and he encapsulates it in his first sermon. So if you want Jesus' first sermon, here it is in Luke chapter four. So if you turn to Luke chapter four, you discover that Jesus goes to, that's his hometown, goes to Nazareth, goes to synagogue, and while he's in synagogue, um, you know, he's getting a little bit of a reputation by now. And so it was kind of, you know, the, the right thing to do. So the priest or whoever, he comes up or whatever, they had a rabbi, I guess. He came down with a scroll and he hands the scroll to Jesus. So here is what we, uh, I'll begin reading in 14. Now, this is his first, he comes to his hometown, right? And making a name for himself. So they're going to have him say a few words in the church service, right? In the, in the synagogue. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. So 
right? So he stands up, and I always find that really cool. Um, in the Old Testament, and even in synagogues in the New Testament, I think this is probably still true. Um, when you're going to read, when the rabbi is going to read the Bible, read God's word, the congregation and the rabbi stand. They read God's word. When the sermon begins, the rabbi sits down and everybody sits down. Someone says, yeah, now God, this is important. Now what I'm going to say is much less important, right? And so Jesus stands up, is the custom. They hand him, the attendant hands him the uh, scroll of Isaiah. So it's big, right? 66 chapters. Hands him Isaiah. Now, look at this. 17. Unrolling it, he found the place. Now he's looking for something, right? This is not haphazard. He found the place where this is written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Pretty cool, right? That's actually one of the servant songs from Isaiah, right? Four of them toward the end of the book. He reads that. Spirit of Lord's on me. He anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recover of sight for the blind, set the oppressed free, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Rolls up the sermon, hands it back, sits down, and here's the whole sermon. You're never getting one this short, but here's the whole sermon. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sit down, sermon time. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying, remember what I just read? Here's what he said. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I've arrived. What Isaiah wrote about is me. I'm here. Now that's interesting, and we don't have time to do, you, you should do this. Jesus actually quotes Isaiah 61. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament in 61, you know what Jesus is referring to. Isaiah 61 isn't the beginning of those themes, though. The beginning of those themes is in Leviticus 25. In fact, Leviticus 25 is actually where the quote comes from that's on the Liberty Bell, right? He came to proclaim freedom, right? On the Liberty. Well, that comes from Leviticus 25. What's Leviticus 25 about? Well, Leviticus 25 is all about the year of Jubilee. Year of Jubilee. Here's what happened, and what I, what I read from Luke and what is quoted from Isaiah, here's what it's about. In the year of Jubilee, all debts are canceled, all prisoners are released, inheritance goes back to the original founder, and atonement is offered because it happens on the Day of Atonement. Debts are canceled, prisoners released, inheritance restored, atonement's offered. That's what year of Jubilee is. Now, the year of Jubilee was the 50th year. So every seven year was a Sabbath year, and every 50th year was a Jubilee year. And what happened in the year of Jubilee? Debts were canceled, so whatever you owed, it was forgiven. Who would really be excited about debts being forgiven? Who would really be excited about that? Debt, oh, you would. <laughs> yeah, debtors would be. Lenders wouldn't be, debtors would be. Who would really be excited about the prisoners getting out? Not if they're moving into your neighborhood, right? But who would be excited? The prisoners. Who would be excited about inheritance being restored? 
Those that squandered their inheritance or got sick and lost it somehow, right? There was no social safety net. They lost it somehow. And who would be excited about atonement? Those who knew they're guilty. Year of Jubilee in 25, Leviticus 25. Do you know how many times the year of Jubilee was celebrated by Israel? So you think David was about a thousand, Moses before, and I say Moses wrote Leviticus. You know how many times they would have celebrated that? There is no record Israel ever celebrated the year of Jubilee, ever. And you can understand why. The lenders are in control. <laughs> the prisoners can't make the rules. Those that have gotten the inheritance of others don't want to retroactively change that. And, you know, yeah, they'll, they'll celebrate the Day of Atonement. They're not messing with those first three. There's no record that the year of Jubilee was ever celebrated. When you read Isaiah, I mean, Isaiah knew it wasn't celebrated, which what he says in Isaiah 61 is this. It really was a good idea, guys. And even though we never celebrated, still was a good idea, even though we never celebrated it. Jesus shows up in Luke chapter 4 and says, yeah, remember that year of Jubilee thing Isaiah spoke about? I'm here, and Jubilee will begin. I cancel debts to those that have a sin debt. I release prisoners that are in bondage because of their sin and habits that they can't break. The inheritance of God that was squandered because of sin, I've come to restore it, and I offer atonement. And all those who know they need it are overcome with amazement at the grace of God when Jesus shows up and says, eh, you know that Jubilee thing? It's a good idea. That's my name. That's what I'm bringing. I've now arrived. So you want to know what Jesus started that we continue? There it is. You read, the, you read Luke. What's Luke all about? Physical deaths being canceled, prisoners being released, inheritance restored. You read Acts. There's kind of a little transition, right? Now spiritual debts in Luke and Acts are being canceled and spiritual prisoners and spiritual inheritance and atonement. Be, there's a Jesus. God loves to use physical realities to communicate spiritual realities. That's what he started. That's what we continued. We continue from the beginning of the book to the end. And what do we find at the end? Revelation 22. That's are all canceled. All of us prisoners are freed. The inheritance of God is returned to us as undeserving as we are. And because of the atonement, we're welcomed home by the king not as somebody who doesn't deserve to be there, but somebody who had their ticket punched by a savior named Jubilee. One story whose point and purpose is Jesus. When you read it like that, you can't go wrong. You may miss a few facts. You keep Jesus in front and center. You can't go too far wrong. Sadly, we often read the Bible and Jesus is an afterthought or never even mentioned in our thinking or in our reading. Uh, maybe it's time we read a big story with Jesus as the center. Let's pray. Sorry we're a minute late. Lord, we thank you for this amazing collection of books that we call the Bible. Lord, forgive us for investing so much more time and energy in other things that are quickly fading away and will be gone before we think about it. But your word's eternal because you're eternal and people are eternal. And Lord, help us to figure out in the busyness of life how to make the principles of this book and the big story, and especially Jesus, 
more central in our lives and help us to live that out as we continue what he started and seek to extend that as far as we can with the people we meet and interact with. We pray in Jesus' name and thank you for, he, for the fact that he included us in his plan. Amen. Amen.